Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, this week's guest is another guest who multiple listeners wrote in and suggested that we have on the podcast. Dr. Robert Foran is a distinguished university professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, where he teaches courses on global labor issues, labor history, immigration, and international development. He also serves as the director of the department's graduate program. He has been a consultant to a number of organizations, including the United Nations Industrial Development Organization, the, Indus the International Labor Organization, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, Dr. Forant received the University of Massachusetts President's Award for Public Service in 1998. And in a topic that caught the attention of a whole lot of Franco-Americans, Dr. Forant was behind a great new project in Lowell that a whole bunch of people were talking about and that we will be talking about on this podcast. Dr. Front, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So before we get going too much into the Franco-American story and the Lowell story, maybe I get a little bit about your background, if that works. Maybe tell sure. us kind of where you're from, how you got an interest in labor history, international labor. So I grew up in uh, Beverly, Massachusetts, big uh, Catholic, Irish, French, Canadian, Italian Oh, wow. History, so, <laughs> that seems like uh, a big, big like a Catholic uh, from all three different parts of the world family. <laughs> and they didn't uh, fight amongst each other? No? No, not that I, well, <laughs> you know, I don't remember. So, gotcha. Uh, so it couldn't have been too bad. Um, I went, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I went to Northeastern University in Boston back when it was $400 a semester. Wow. I'll take that. <laughs> um, so that's how old I am. I just gave away my age. Um, and I, uh, um, I finished my degree, I got a degree in history. I always loved history. Um, Northeastern I went to because it was co-op and sure. you took semesters on, semesters off, you could make money. And I actually ended up with very little debt at the end of uh, my time there because they had really good jobs, made money. And that's I, awesome. I, I had an apartment in Boston with a couple of other uh, friends and um, life was good. Um, I got a master's degree at Northeastern um, a couple of years later. And then a little while after that, I ended up going out to UMass Amherst to get my PhD in history. Um, while I was working on my PhD, I had a house fire. Oh, wow. And I lost all my research. And oh, geez. Before you could have like zip drives and thumb drives. Sure. Whatever, the cloud and all the other stuff that you can have to save things. So I lost all the work that I had done oh, wow. on, on what was my final work, my doctoral dissertation. And so I quit school. And I went to work. So this is a long and short of labor, why labor history. Yeah, no, so this I ended is up working for wow. um, nearly 15 years as a machinist in a really big factory in Springfield, Mass. Worked there for quite a while, then became the business agent for the Union International Union of Electrical Workers Local 206. And I did that for, for about four years. And then very abruptly, the company pulled out of Springfield and closed. Um, so I ran a community economic development project in Springfield for about three years, trying to help out of work machinists like myself find different kinds of jobs and sure. training to find something new to do because that part of Massachusetts was losing industrial jobs, really staggering, staggering numbers. I had always stayed in touch with my um, main advisor at UMass Amherst. And he kept telling me to come back to school and finish. He kept saying, you'd be a good teacher, so you should come back to Lowell and finish. Um, I didn't uh, come back to Amherst, excuse me, and sure. finish. I didn't, I mean, I didn't think that much of it initially, but once, once the Bosch closed, American Bosch, the place I worked in, once it closed, um, I, kept, I thought more about it and eventually I went back. Um, and he helped me so that I didn't have to take courses again. I had about a 15 year gap from the time I gotcha. started the program to I quit till I went back and finished. Sure. But we worked it out so they didn't have to take courses all over again. And I wrote, uh, I did different research entirely from what I had been working on at the, at the time of the fire. Um, and I finished in the summer of 1994. And um, at the, within a few weeks after that, I got a job offer from 
from UMass Lowell to teach in a graduate program that they had then as well as in the history department. And so I did that for, I had a one-year contract. I had a couple of one-year contracts and they offered me a full-time job. I had two kids at the time. Um, I didn't necessarily want to relocate them. They were, one was in starting high school, one was in middle school. Sure. So I drove back and forth from Holyoke where I live. Oh, wow. That's not a short drive. Canadian population out there. Yeah. Um, drove back and forth from Holyoke to um, Lowell on the days that I taught and then back again um, in the evenings. And then eventually they went off to college and I thought, okay, well, I either need to get a job in Western Mass or I need to move to Lowell. Um, and, and so um, that's what I did. I moved to Lowell <laughs> several, several years ago. Um, so I live in Lowell. I live in the Centerville neighborhood in Lowell. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, I'm curious, what was the initial topic then? So my initial topic was um, sort of the Italian side of my family in Beverly, Massachusetts. In the early 20th century, there had been a mass influx of Italians um, to Beverly, Lynn, Salem, that area, largely because they were building a lot of um, stone um, factories, not red brick, but like almost like quarried um, granite and such. And a lot of like really skilled brickwork. And there were a lot of Italian masons apparently at the time in Italy without any work to do. And so they were recruited to come specifically to Beverly to build this really gigantic factory building, which is still standing today. It was the United Shoe Machinery Corporation when it was built. It was the largest producer of machinery to make shoes um, in the entire world. And so they built this massive multi- floored several block long building and then they stayed and so at the time I had enough reading skill and a little bit of fluency in in Italian that I was researching and writing about how they ended up in Beverly and sort of the history of the Italian uh, community in Beverly but after losing all that work I sort of lost touch with the language and whatever and so the idea of going back and doing that again just, just wasn't wasn't feasible Gotcha. Um, so I ended up writing, again, sort of what I knew. I wrote about the history of the Connecticut River Valley and the collapse of industry from like Hartford, Connecticut, all the way up into Springfield, Vermont, that very, the region along the river, which had been this incredible industrial um, region from the mid 19th century yeah. to the 1980s. And so I wrote about the history of the sort of the rise and fall. Got you. Um, of that industrial complex. And then I turned that into a book. That's um, awesome. And so it was very, very different topic, but always, I mean, for me, always industrial history, um, working class history of the U.S., which is sort of my, my field, always was immigration history too. You couldn't do working class history. Sure. You couldn't do industrial history without thinking about immigrants and immigration because immigrants were the backbone of the blue collar workforce and the history of the country. So I've always been sort of a foot in each <laughs> each yeah. camp, if you will, in terms of if I'm writing about low labor history, I'm writing about French Canadian workers, Greek workers, Portuguese workers, Irish workers in the early 19th century. And so there's always a crossover. So I really see the, the way that I've sort of evolved into writing a lot of immigration related history just sort of is a natural sort of connection to everything else I do. No, that's great. And what made you decide, you know, I'm going to take some time to tell the Franco-American story here in Lowell. Well, part of it was, I mean, part of it was um, several years ago, myself and a colleague, uh, Christoph Strobel, who's in the history department at UMass Lowell, we, we were fortunate enough to get a contract, a grant from the Lowell National Park um, to write an immigration history of the city, not like incredibly detailed the way an academic book would look, sure. but sort of an overview history of immigration and law. And in the process, so this was um, 2000, 2004, 2005, maybe that period of time, we wrote a lot about sort of the waves of immigration coming into not just Lowell, but Haverhill, Lawrence, sort of Nashua, Sort of, sure. you know, every, sort of in the greater Lowell area, I guess you could say. Um, and one of the large groups was French Canadians. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of French Canadians that slowly came down um, over the last part of the 19th century. And so writing about that community, it was when I first became aware, and this is sort of how all this dovetailed, 
first became aware that the largest concentration of French Canadian first and second generation as they settled in Lowell and then had kids and settled still further was in an area of the city that's now populated um, largely by UMass Lowell. Most of the Lasher. university's dormitories, it's recreation center, um, the Lasher Park, the baseball field where the Lowell spinners play, that whole area was the French Canadian neighborhood. And as we were doing the research, I came to figure out and find out that that whole neighborhood, that whole area was torn down by the city um, before the university was there. The university didn't have anything to do with knocking it down. Sure. The city decided to knock the neighborhood down. And I got fascinated by and interested in what that looked like and how that impacted people um, that had grown up there generationally that had really rich culture in that neighborhood couple hundred stores, newspapers, churches, daycare centers, um, St. Joseph's Hospital, which was largely French speaking physicians and nurses that tended to people um, in the neighborhood. And it just struck me as this really interesting research. And so I started researching and writing about that. And then I thought, well, it's really fascinating that this history is there and all these students and the university are all congregated in this space, but there's virtually nothing that indicates to the students that are living there now who was there before. Sure. There's absolutely no record um, in any sort of physical way. And so when I was teaching, I would tell my students and they would go, wow, how come like we don't know that? How come that's not right. like and so slowly but surely I kept hectoring the university and saying we need to do something. Uh, <laughs> we need to put some signage up. We need to we need to do something about this history and make it more visible for all the thousands of students that come and go in that neighborhood every day to walk over the, um, over the bridge over to the campus, but leave their dorms and whatever. And, and as well, visitors who come to the sure. university, parents, grandparents, whomever are walking in that area and where La Lasher Park is, where, base, where people come to watch baseball games. And so that's essentially how sort of the idea um, came into being to try to get, and for me, one of the things I like to do with my students is get them involved in, if I can figure out a project like that and get some money to help fund students to help me do the work. Of I love getting students involved and helping do the research and sort of doing the initial writing and, you know, I'm working with them, but I want them to do something with the hit, you know, they're studying history, but I want them to also figure out what it means to be a historian, what it means to find stuff out and write about it and display it to the public, to the general public as well, not just to, not just in an academic setting. And so I'm always looking for ways that I can cross over with what I'm, what I'm, what I'm researching and writing myself. And so this project became something that over the period of time, several students worked on too. Now, before we get into the specifics about the project, which we definitely will, maybe just a little bit of background, because we've, we've talked about uh, Lowell before, but not a ton on, on the podcast so far. Uh, when did the French Canadians arrive? Why did they arrive? Where did they come from? Basically, the records, the census records and other things that, that we've looked at to try to understand this better, there's a small, small number of French Canadians um, in the Lowell area, in the Merrimack River Valley area, around the early 1860s, around the time of the Civil War, but not really significant numbers. Um, but between 1865, 1870, and 1900, somewhere between 600 and 700,000 French Canadians come down um, into Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then amongst that population, th several thousand. Um, again, depending on what you're looking at, somewhere between 35 and 40,000 people eventually, French-speaking people eventually end up in Lowell proper. Wow. And so it's interesting, the history and a lot of oral histories that have been collected where families talk about the process. In many cases, it's what historians call serial migrations. People will come down from, um, from the Maritimes or from Quebec um, or some other parts of Canada they might come into Maine for a little while and then sure. go back. Next time they might come into Northern New Hampshire and then go back and then they come into Southern New Hampshire and then eventually into Mass. And it's different than European migration because European migration, the trip, not to say that a trip from Quebec to Lowell isn't arduous, 
but you're not in a steam a sailing ship or a steamship on sure. right absolutely um, <laughs> yeah and it's a bit easier to go back and so for the longest time like in this period from 1870 to 1900, 1910, people are going back and forth. So they're coming, they're coming down um, in like late fall, when if they have farms or they're doing lumbering or fishing or whatever, the weather now is prohibitive. So they can come down into Southern Nashua or someplace like that, or Manchester, New Hampshire, or Lowell and work in the mills, or Lawrence, or even like out toward Holyoke Way to work eventually in paper mills. Um, but then in spring, they might go back. So they might sure. work five or six months and then go back and then come back again and go back and come back again. And so there's a lot of this, um, what's pretty episodic and a bit different. Again, a lot of people, if they're coming from on the other side of my family, for example, from Southern Italy, when they got here, they got here. <laughs> You're not going um, back for spring, right? Going back, and you weren't gonna, <laughs> maybe you would, work here for a while and then go back, like make money and then go back and buy a farm or, sure. you know, a winery or whatever. That was that, right? For, for the majority of people. <laughs> yeah. But, yep. and then once the railroad is in, it's even easier for people to move back and forth. And, and I'm assuming they were all recruited by mill recruiters. Is that essentially how yeah, this in happened? Some cases they were, in some cases they would be recruited, but then once people got here, word of mouth, and so everybody oh, sure. that came to Lowell wouldn't leave, right? And so there would, there would, starting in the 1870s, there was a stable number of people who were here. And so then what would happen is it would be sort of extended families. Gotcha. Right? So if you were in a large um, French-Canadian family and you settled in, say, Nashua or New Hampshire or Manchester, New Hampshire, um, and you now were in a triple-decker or whatever, you know, three-family and working in one of the mills there, the Amiscog mill or whatever you were doing, you would write back home and say that there's plenty of work. Right. Um, and then maybe your brother or your your cousin or somebody would come down and then eventually, if they were making money, they if they were married, they might have their wife and their small children come down with them. And eventually that's sort of how the, the community spreads. So definitely recruitment sure. for sure. Um, but also word of mouth. Railroads would recruit because railroads like selling tickets. Of course. Um, also, during this period of time, there were no, um, there, there was no immigration laws and rules the way we think about them today. There was no, you didn't have to get a visa, right? We don't really do that right. um, until, until well into the 20th century um, after, after World War I. So it's, it's not as difficult as it would be today. I mean, it's even more difficult, obviously, now with COVID. Right, um, yeah. But COVID aside, um, it, it, it would if you were go, if you wanted to migrate and live permanently um, in the U.S. from Canada, you would have to get a visa. You would have to do all of the paperwork, and you'd have to get a, you know, some kind of a green card or whatever to be able to work and such. That didn't exist. Gotcha. So it was pretty. So the border, while there's obviously a border, it's not policed in the same way we think of it now. We don't have passports the way we have them today. Um, passports are really not used all that much until World War II. Um, and so people can move back and forth pretty easily. Gotcha. And maybe you could paint a picture for us because I live in Manchester, New Hampshire. I'm at where I'm coming to you now. It's actually a living room um, from a place that was converted mill housing, in fact. Okay, well, there you go. So <laughs> you've, got, you've got the echoes around you. I do, absolutely. But I understand that there was a... Petite Canada area of Lowell. Maybe you could paint the picture, you know, what the schools look like, what the, the churches look like, sure. what kind of media, newspaper, radio, any any of that stuff. Yeah, so there's um, there's a pretty sizable culture. There are um, there are several newspapers. Uh, Le Echo Canada is one paper. Um, there's something called the Journal du Commerce, Le Toile. There's like a whole bunch. There are there are at least a half a dozen newspapers that serve this neighborhood, known as Petit Canada, Little Canada. Um, it's sort of bounded by the river and the north, the, the what's called the Northern Canal. And it's hard, if you're not from the area, you don't necessarily imagine it, but um, typically in even, you know, in a place like Manchester or Nashua or whatever as well, there would be generally some particular parts of the community that would be like a Greek neighborhood or a Portuguese Absolutely. neighborhood. Or, yep. So just, large French Canadian population, um, parochial schools, 
the as people came in, they were very wary of going to school with non-Catholics, and as well, the Protestants were very wary of going to school with Catholics. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, and so there, so French Canadians and Lowell faced a considerable amount of discrimination. And so part of the creation of uh, parochial schools built around the large parishes, French Canadian parishes, sure. city, are in some way uh, a methodology to, to hold on to culture and language. And they're also, to some extent, a reaction to the fact that people aren't necessarily welcoming the French Canadian population into Lowell initially with open arms. Sure. So people become, and this happens with other groups as well over time, but definitely have some French Canadians. So they create a very sort of an insular kind of a, they look kind of inward in terms of the population. They also build um, their own hospital and they recruit into Lowell um, a order of nuns from Canada called the Grey Nuns. They come in to work as nurses um, in the hospital and also as teachers in the lower grades and some of the, there's a St. Joseph's Hospital, there's a St. Joseph's Parochial School, um, there's a French Canadian Orphanage. Yeah. Um, there, there's a whole set of institutions. And along with that, there are somewhere between, again, depending on the time period, there are, some, there are 200 or more small businesses in this neighborhood. So there are, uh, you know, the likely suspects, bakeries, yeah, right. you know, delicatessens, places to get beans, places to get meat pies, um, you know, all the sort of stuff of home, right? Um, yeah. And so there's a significant sort of transactional economy um, inside the neighborhood, which is really very vibrant, even to the point where the neighborhood's taken down, these businesses are still thriving. And in the oral histories, just to sort of get the idea, there are a lot of people, a lot of the oral histories that are done when the National Park comes into Lowell, they do a lot of oral histories in the 1970s. So it was pretty long into the 20th century. A lot of people that they interview only speak French. Yeah. And because they grew, they came as um, young people and they lived in this community where they had their newspaper. They also had radio and music. Right. Yeah. And, all kinds of entertainment, social, no, all sorts of drinking clubs and social clubs and, you know, sports teams and whatever. And so you could live your whole day speaking French, thinking French. And if you went to work in the mills that were in the neighborhoods around where, right in the area where, where this uh, Petit Canada was, there were several big mill complexes, the Merrimack, the Merrimack Mill Complex, the Lawrence Mill Complex, and these were within a two or three block walk from anywhere in these neighborhoods. And so that's typically what people did. They settled into these spaces and then could easily walk back and forth to work. And if you got a job in one of these mills, you would be trained by somebody else who spoke French. And so the, the whole sort of transactional process was fairly, was fairly easy. Obviously, second generation, you know, more English is spoken. Kids sure. are not going to like, some kids are staying in parochial school and high school, other kids are going to Lowell High. Um, and then eventually, um, you know, by third generation, by sort of the grandchild, the grandchildren of the sort of the pioneers who came early. Sure. Um, they're even by that point losing their French entirely um, as, as they're out and about more into the larger um, larger city, but it's really quite um, interesting when you go, even people that are interviewed second generation, they will talk about their parents not, not speaking, um, not speaking English, or maybe one person did and one person didn't. And usually it would be the grandmother that did not speak English because they were more sort of located in, in the household or whatever. Um, it was lot, you know, or if they worked, they might work in the mill, but they would be working because many of them did, but they would working, be working with other French Canadian, French speaking women. Um, and so they could, again, whatever, right? And the triple deckers, another way to think about the neighborhoods, the three deckers um, that were sort of all over the place, probably up where you are as well. Yep. A lot of them haven't survived, but a lot of them were where the stores were. So the ground floor could be a bakery or some kind of a vegetable market or a meat market or whatever it might be. And then sure. the second and third floors, that's where families would live. And that could be generational. So you could have your grandma and your grandpa living in the middle floor 
and you and your kids on the top floor. But when you went out to work, you dropped kids off at grandma when you went to work, right? So <laughs> you, had, you, you had building daycare. Uh, <laughs> and that was pretty, that's pretty typical. No, that's all. I, I, something I honestly didn't know until I started this project. It seems to be very similar to what's happening in Lowell. That My, my great-grandmother, born, lived, her entire life died in Manchester, never spoke a word of English. Because you didn't yeah, have to, well, as you just said, you didn't have to for the day to day. That fits, right? I mean, there's not. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm looking down at my notes. There were, there was something called the Pawtucketville Social Club. Uh, you know, there were all, again all of these places, right, where you could. And the same thing happened within, when other within other groups when the Greeks came, sure. the Portuguese came to Lowell, but they but their communities were not as large. The French Canadian community in in. Other than the Irish community, the French Canadian immigrant population was the, they were the second largest. And so they definitely had an influence um, on the culture of the city. It took quite a while for people to actually begin to make it into politics, like to, to get elected for city council right. and things like that. I mean, those getting over those humps, the Irish controlled the politics of the city, controlled the patronage of the city, police, fire. Gotcha. Churches? Teams. No, well, churches churches were, so there were Irish Catholic churches, but there were also um, French Catholic churches. Gotcha. And Each so, with their own schools, I assume. Yeah. And they had their own schools, right? So you could go to, you could go to Irish, you could go to St. Patrick's um, and go to their parochial school or in the neighborhood I'm in, there's St. Michael's, which is right around the corner from where I live in Centerville. Um, it was a Polish parish and it also had its own school. Um, and sure. the neighborhood around where I live was, was not all Polish, but there was a sizable Polish population. So if you go to another part of Lowell, which was Portuguese, and there would be a Portuguese Catholic parish, generally a K through eight yep. would be what a lot of people would do. But then high school would be a little bit harder, It'd be harder for some of the communities to be able to afford Sure. high school with everything that would go with it in terms of what kids could get with science and other things right. and, and sports and all the other kind of stuff that by that point by the 40s 1940s 1950s kids want those things they don't of want course. They don't, you know i mean probably in manchester i know in low there's a little catholic high school so there's yep. probably a sizable catholic high school there around is. where you are that has yep. probably has a really good hockey team <laughs> they did they did couple of years that my my alma mater just lost the state championship a couple of years ago in fact yeah 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 and that that's <laughs> again that's fairly you know like I, there's a certain like there's a certain story you can tell and you can adapt it to you know like i could you everything i'm saying you're thinking oh yeah that's like down the road correct yeah um, no it's also there's it's it's really i mean it's a frustrating thing about teaching immigration history and seeing how difficult some people have it to understand another group and what another group faces when they come in, and unless you can talk to them like we're talking now, and then you say, "Oh yeah, that was kind of like the way my grandparents would right. treat." Right. Why do I want to do that to somebody else? Absolutely. Like, they didn't like it. Why do I want to do it to somebody else? Right. Absolutely. There are certain threads in terms of why why people leave home. Nobody leaves home just for the fun of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. If you want coming down here and the numbers that they are from these parts of Canada where generationally they lived sure. just for the heck of it, right? They're coming for very specific reasons, mostly economic, as far as, as, far as um, people coming from the North are concerned. And again, it's not a lot different than why people are coming, you know, from the Dominican Republic now, or, you know, from Mexico or from, Absolutely. you know, some other place, right? And so we have the more, I mean, I feel like, doing this kind of work is important because if I can get people to at least listen, maybe the story I'm telling about their particular group, I just did a really massive project in Lowell as well, a Greek immigration history for the Hellenic Society, which is the largest Greek yep. cultural organization um, in Lowell, trying to reveal the same thing, right? And the parallels are really, I mean, there's differences, but the parallels are really right. fascinating. No, that's great. Now, when did we start seeing a decline then of this? First of all, why? Why did people stop showing up? You know, when did we, I guess, from what I understand, there's almost like an end date that's given to the, <laughs> to the petite Canada yeah, there's in Lowell. A, there's, like, there's like a shelf life. Um, yeah. <laughs> by the 1920s, the U.S. really, in, in terms of politics in the United States, from the end of the First World War, from 1918, 1919, 
1925, there's a real effort on the part of a lot of people in Congress from both the Democrat and the Republican parties to stop immigration into the country. A very sort of intense sort of drive to close off immigration um, and largely to close it off to um, Southern and Eastern Europe and to create quota systems and visas and all sorts of things to regulate people coming in. This also affects people coming in from various parts of Canada, from, from Quebec, again, from the Maritimes, sure. from New Brunswick, from Nova Scotia, from wherever people would want to be coming in from. And so there's a lot more regulation and there are numbers set. Only so many people per year can come in from a certain, from Canada or from Italy or from, and so, that all gets enforced starting in 1925. Numbers sort of drop precipitously from most of the world in 1925. Gotcha. And the quota system stays in place until the 1960s. Wow. So that coupled with the Great Depression, the stock market crash in 1929, and then the bottom falling out of the American economy, the most compelling reason to come is work. Yeah, there right. Isn't any work, yeah. right. There isn't any work anywhere. Right. I mean, the, the, the Great Depression is a global Great Depression. Absolutely. Um, but the compelling reason for people to leave, you know, leave Montreal or leave Quebec City or leave wherever or leave Halifax or whatever um, is no longer here. So that slows numbers down. Then in the aftermath of the Second World War, the, there's a period of, say, from the early from the late 1940s to 1960 is a period of time when almost all the large textile mills in New England close up and move south. Yeah. So the Amiskog mill in Manchester, um, other mills in, you know, other parts of Maine, um, paper mills and such in Holyoke or in Pittsfield or way out in North Adams at North Adams, Mass., which has a really large French-Canadian population, Lowell, Lawrence, Fall River, New Bedford, basically the textile industry for all general purposes disappears. Gotcha. So what's now happening to this little Canada where the majority of people made a living working in these mills um, are now finding it difficult to get a job, the neighborhood begins to suffer. There's disinvestment in the mills. There's no work. Um, maybe in order to like engage in some level of upward economic mobility, my grandfather, if again I had come from Quebec, is in Lowell, and he basically makes enough money that he can put a down payment down on a three-decker in a store. Gotcha. But now nobody's working. Nobody's buying his pastries or his meat pies right. or whatever, and okay, or his beans. All right, well I got to close the store, or I can't invest in keeping the building up. Right. right. And so the neighborhood. So, you know, an expression right there goes the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so it's a combination of the economy shrinking, people being unable to make a living. Um, so lots of people move away to follow the work south. Other people might even go back to Canada if they still have family. Sure. That they can go back to or they might move to some other part of the country where it looks like there's work. And the city decides, the, the Lowell Redevelopment Authority and the Lowell City Council decide that the area where Little Canada sits would make a nice industrial park. And so they basically push through the Lowell City Council, the taking of the buildings. Wow. And sort of the eviction of the people living in the buildings. Wow. Um, and the actually they um, in this process they physically knock the buildings down and then light the rubble on fire. They basically oh, wow. burn the neighborhood um, street by street. And they tell people when the decision is made to do it, they tell the people still in the neighborhood that they'll build other housing elsewhere in the city so that people can relocate. Um, but they really don't. They don't. Oh, wow. They don't come through. Um, they built some, but nothing to, nothing uh, you know of consequence that can really um, absorb sure. all these people. So people can, so people will end up moving. People move to Methuen, Chelmsford, Drake it if they can afford it. Sure. Um, but the neighborhood basically disperses, and so 
by the mid 1960s, late 1960s, that whole neighborhood we were describing a bit earlier is completely gone. Wow. It's just like a flat piece of land. That's empty crazy. of everything. The yep. canal is there on one sort of bounding and on one side um, and the river is there kind of bounding it on the other side, but in between, wow, like a desert, right? It's just gone. And the thinking was, which sort of makes sense, but doesn't, but the thinking was, the argument was, there's a, this is the point where there's this high-tech miracle in Massachusetts. This is when you get a lot of the first wave of computer companies, okay. Apollo and Digital sure. and all these other companies that are sort of growing prime computer they're all bubbling up. And the thinking is that it's going to get too expensive to keep manufacturing of the computers and the components and things that are being done in greater Boston there because it's much more expensive. Sure. And that if we clear this land, all these people will come and build these big in, build this industrial park oh, wow. on this cleared away land, right? And so the so the argument is, you know, that that if Lowell is going to move forward economically. It has to make this sort of very sharp break with its historical past of the mills, right? Wow. And so not only do they tear the neighborhood down, but they start knocking mill buildings down as well. Sure. So the big Merrimack Mill Complex, where the Songus Arena is now, where, where like UMass Low plays hockey and such, and there are concerts right. and all of that. That whole area where the arena sits was where the Merrimack Mills was, which is right in the middle of what had been Little Canada. And so the mills get torn down. And again, this whole area gets cleared, but no investment comes. There is no, there is yeah. nobody interested in this land. Sure. And so by the mid seventies, the university, which is sitting on the other side of the river, it can look across the river and see this vast <laughs> emptiness. Right. Right. So I was thinking, well, maybe we can, what if we start building some dorms over there and we start sort of changing the features of, uh, what's called Lowell Textile Institute at the time and have more like campus students, less of a commuter school, some combination thereof where we build more dormitories and all this other stuff. And so they grow into the space. Gotcha. Um, and so that's how they end up there. And then ultimately as the neighborhood dissipates and as the French Canadian population gets smaller and smaller as well, St. Joseph's Hospital closes as well. And that's sitting right there, right in where the university is. And so eventually the university buys the hospital. The, the, the hospital is closed. Sure. It buys the building. It tears down the oldest part um, and builds something that's there now called University Crossing. Keeps about half of what had been the hospital, um, but puts a new front on it, sure. um, which sort of faces... Um, at the bridge sort of toward where the main campus of the university is. And so the university is pretty much sprawled gotcha. <laughs> into this space. And if you look at a photograph of it now, I had a student do not time-lapse not time-lapse photography, but uh, uh, somebody had taken in the 1940s a series of photographs of Little Canada um, from an airplane. And so you can really see the, right. the, the heft of the neighborhood, how densely packed it is everything about it. And then she got a friend of hers who's an engineering student to fly a drone and That's take awesome. from the same vantage wow. point, take the same photos. And for one for her honors college thesis, she like juxtaposed the photos to show and then wrote about what happened. That's and amazing. How, you know, how if you looked at it, you could see the that what had happened to the neighborhood. It's really quite brilliant. But Is there a way really, we can find that? Um I can send you a link to it. Sure. Yeah, we'll make that available. Absolutely, that sounds really fascinating. I, oh, yeah. I know that I know that area a little bit only because uh, I used to coach women's rugby at New England College. So I've coached a couple of times down against UMass Lowell in that area. So well, around the back where probably the fields that you would have played on are behind North Campus, and so that area would have been so from where you were. If you looked across the river, that was where Little Canada would have been, right on the other side of the river. I have a good friend of mine. Uh, Paul Marion, who um, used to work at the university, his uncle owned Marion's Market, which was in the middle of the neighborhood, and he lived on the other side of the river. And in the winter, rather than walk all the way around, he would walk over the river when it froze. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Over to that neighborhood behind where behind where those playing fields are. People That's would just cool. Go walk across the river. 
Um, <laughs> I think it was colder then. I think global warming makes that a bit more. <laughs> a bit more I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I'm going walking in any rivers anytime soon. No. Right, but you know, he's told me stories about that's his awesome. Uncle and you know, Marion's Market, which was like right, right in the area that got knocked down. That's cool. Now, so we've talked about this project a couple times. What what was the project? What made you decide uh, to have the format you took with this project? The thing that's interesting about the city is because um, there's a national park um, and some of the land that we wanted to potentially put signage on is owned by the park. Sure. And a lot of the other land is owned by the university. We had to get the park to agree. We also had to get the Lowell Historic Board to agree because they're very um, sort of into, and rightly so, how the history, public history, gets told signage, they don't want stuff willy-nilly and whatever, of all, just sure. weird-shaped signs and whatever, right? <laughs> so it ended, up, it ended up being a collaboration between the university, the National Park, the Lowell National Historical Park, and the Lowell Historic Board. Basically, we, myself and colleagues at the university from university development and facilities, like we, me and students did research on the neighborhood. And we picked out a bunch of sites, more than four, um, but we picked out a lot of sites where we thought signage could go. And then eventually, um, because it's fairly expensive to do this kind of stuff, make the signs, make them weatherize, sure, absolutely, and stand up to the elements and all that. It's not cheap to do, and the sign the signs themselves were pretty good size. We could afford. We had money at the time to do four. So we put one at an overlook that looks over the Merrimack River, right across from where the University Cross Crossing Building is, I mentioned before, where St. Joseph's Hospital used to be, sort of the, like one of these anchor spots in the neighbor, in the, what had been Little Canada. Sure. And it's an overall sign that talks about what used to be there, sort of if, you know, if you could glance back in history and you were looking this way in the view, this is what would be here. Um, and then there's three more um, at different places strategically in where the neighborhood had been that tell different stories about the history of the neighborhood. And so we, we spent a lot of time thinking about the writing, the wording. We approached people um, who are still active in the um, French Canadian community in the city and had them look at the text and make sure you know, we weren't making any horrendous mistakes. Once these signs were up, they were going to be, they were going to be up. Um, and then we, um, we then had to pick out images. So each one of the signs has several images on it as well that show the neighborhood either in a before or after state. Gotcha. Um, which is really fun to do to pick out the images and try to get them. One of them has a map of like the area where the neighborhood was um back in the day um and one's by one's at the entryway to where people would go to lasher park to baseball games yeah there's a lot of foot traffic um and you sort of got a captive audience waiting there to buy a ticket or whatever and there's this historic <laughs> marker um, and so hopefully people will read it that wouldn't necessarily go to a history site or whatever but it's like right there so oh okay this is what used to be here this is what this neighborhood used to be and another one so across from where um, University Rec Center is in a really large area that the university has turned into soccer fields and tennis courts. They actually play rugby on Yeah, that that's, where, that's where I coached. Yep. Okay, well, there's a right there where, where the entryway is to that park now where you go through those big wrought yep. iron sort of fences that are there, that yes, little sir. pavilion area. There's a really large sign right there. Oh, that's I'm awesome. Talking about what used to be in that part of the neighborhood. Um, and so, yeah, and if you're there and you look across, you're looking at the old, um, the, the old large, really French, big French Canadian church right there as well. So that's really at the heart of what had been the neighborhood um, where that sign is. Yeah, the idea was, and the idea was, again, to work with the park. So the signs are very much like the other signs that the National Park has put in different parts of, um, of the city as well. So sure. there's a certain um, level of conformity to it. It was really funny because we we put everything up um, in October. We we did all these walks in the summertime with our masks on and everything to yeah. be COVID safe and all that. 
with the park and the historic board and the university picking out the places and then sure. we all agreed on the text, the images. Um, then when they were up, we did a little walking tour, mini kind of walking tour to all the signs to see them all up and whatever, which was really fascinating. And then the first, the, the very first sign, the one right across from where St. Joseph's was, when I was doing the work, I put on a social media site that I have um, that we were working on in this, this. And if anybody had any family photos and they didn't mind sharing them, I wouldn't keep them, but I would scan them and give right. them back or whatever. Or you could do a really good JPEG and send it to me. Um, maybe we could use them. And so and elsewhere, I've used these photos in a, um, a, a immigration history website that, that I have. But um, one photo got sent from this family that lived in the neighborhood. Um, the Gallaudet family, and they lived on a street that was one of the streets being taken down. But there's a photograph they sent me of the five sisters in this family um, on Easter Sunday with their pastel oh, nice. on and whatever, so sure. they're standing all together. It's a really wonderful, really truly wonderful photograph. Um, and so we used it. And then when the signs went up, I was going to email back the family and I asked them ahead of time, could we use it? Sure. I didn't want to yep. put it up there and have them say no. They <laughs> said, sure. Then I wanted to let them know the sign was up. So I was going to email them. But before I could, the the the, the five sisters had a, have a brother. The brother was just taking a random walk and he, <laughs> and he went over and looked at the sign and said, holy crap, those are my sisters. <laughs> that and is awesome. Called, called all the sisters, called the sisters to come look at the sign. And so then they sent me a photo of, the, youngest of the sisters in the picture sort of pointing at herself. <laughs> in the sign, which was really, really quite brilliant. Um, and then we had another photo that we used that shows this block of tenements along the canal. Um, and somebody, and I had I posted that photo on social media and says, anybody know anything about these buildings or whatever? And this woman sent me an email and said, I grew up in the third building down in this photo along the canal. And my brother and his friends used to dive off the roof of the building into the canal. And <laughs> they thought, whoa, really brilliant story. And so we used that photograph on one of the other signs. That's um, awesome. And so it's really like people are into the history if you can figure out a way. Well, you know from what you're doing. Um, and so for me, that's like the gold, right? Yeah, absolutely. You put, you put that out in the world and you have no idea what's going to happen. But then when somebody says, oh, yeah, there's... This is a photo of my family on Easter Sunday. And I, I mean, growing up, my mom made my, I had three sisters and she would make the Easter outfits. Um, and I they believe were, it. You know, you know, pink and light blue. And <laughs> oh, yeah. And light green. And my sisters hated it, but that's what we wore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and a matching dress, right? Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's what you did. And so, yeah, the photo I have of the, uh, you know, one of the young women, one of the very young women in the original photo, like pointing at it, it's just like, again, for somebody that does this kind of work and does what I like to do, it was like, oh man, this is like, this can't get any better than this. No, that's awesome. That's way, way fun. Now, this has been a, this entire conversation has been a blast. So if somebody wants to find these panels, is there an easy way to, there's like a map available where you can tell them where to go? There's not a map available yet. There's going to be, but because of COVID, we couldn't, we couldn't do all the things that we had wanted sure. to do. We actually were going to try to put like barcodes on them. Oh, cool. Yeah. Narrate from one from, from each one. But I mean, the easiest way, if you go to the very first one on that one, it tells you where all the other ones are. Gotcha. So the first one is, so there's a new, so there on um, university Avenue, there's the, there's what's called the Richard Howe bridge, which is the major bridge over the Merrimack by the North Campus of UMass Lowell. And that's again, right across the street from University Crossing. So if somebody wanted to come and look, if you didn't know anything about Lowell, right. you basically do search University Crossing UMass Lowell. That will get you to the spot where right diagonally across the street is the first marker. There's a big area that the university has sort of made into like an overlook looking over the river. Sure. The very first large sign is right there you can't miss it if you get there and then that one tells you where the other three are awesome that's oh, the is only this... way to do it for now 
Gotcha. Well, we can. I'll talk to. I'll talk to Mike. See if we can put up a, a map, at least to the first one, so we can attach that on our social media. Because this yeah, sounds yeah. awesome. I definitely want to go down and check it out. Yeah, if you do, like I say, if you do University Crossing, whatever, or it's sort of at the corner of the Pawtucket, Pawtucket Street and, and University Avenue, I think that's sort of the, if you're doing the geo code or whatever, <laughs> I don't, my students know that I don't, um, <laughs> then that would be, that would be the way. And like I say, one, there's one by Lalasher Park. Yeah. So that's an easy enough market for people that you know that's just that's an obvious one and then there's the other one by those playing fields where you said you were coaching rugby yep no skates are now that's um that's where the fourth one is so the second one is on the bridge over the canal yep and that's the one with the photo of the tenement blocks gotcha where where the, where the <laughs> jumping off brother and his friends used to dive off <laughs> um, i can't imagine it uh, so they're pretty easy to find Awesome. Well, this has been fun. Thank you so much again. We've been talking to Dr. Foran about a really awesome project, putting up all kinds of interesting panels around the city of Lowell, telling the French Canadian history of that super important town to our story. So thank you very much for joining us, sir. My pleasure. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.